Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. You know, I uh, really love uh, the book of Romans, St. Paul's Epistle to Romans. And in, in Romans chapter 12, he begins by saying, Therefore, in view of God's many mercies, and uh, offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. And, you know, whenever you see the there, you might want to know what it's there for. And it is uh, to thrust you back to everything uh, St. Paul has taught about Jesus uh, and what he's done for us in order to free us up, free us up to serve our neighbor. And, uh, you know, he lists a variety of gifts. Jürgen Moltmann, uh, the great theologian, once said that any uh, gift that we have has the power to become charismatic when it is touched by the Holy Spirit. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we um, are two weeks away from kickoff Sunday, and we're going to have a, the 9 a.m. is moving to 10. <clears throat> this is a powerful word. It's just coming at you. You can feel it coming through the speakers. But anyway, um, but what I'm saying is, is that um, there... We're moving from the 9 to the 10, and then this service is going to continue at the 11. And, um, and I really believe that God is bringing us to a moment, and, uh, and uh, it's going to be a moment where all hands are going to be needed on deck as people come from all over the city to this place to hear the good news of God's mercy and so that they might enjoy their forgiveness. So I'd love for you to look through those gifts someday this week and pray about where is God calling you to serve and to think about joining us for our leadership training on September 9th that's coming up. It's, it's very important and we're gonna, God is calling you to something in this church and I'm very excited to see what it is. Also though, if you come with us on our pilgrimage, we're going to Israel, the Holy Land, in, um, on March 1st through the 12th and uh, you will get to see Caesarea Philippi in in. In reality, it's a real place. It's in northern Israel near the Lebanese border. You have to turn your phone off because immediately it says welcome to Lebanon and then you get in all sorts of trouble when you're coming back uh, across the border. But um, it's a real place and you'll actually see it. And uh, it was, Caesarea Philippi was a pagan respite essentially, uh, for uh, Roman officials and Roman soldiers who needed a break from the staunch monotheism of Judaica. And Caesarea Philippi, it was dedicated to Caesar by Herod's son, Philip II. And so uh, this is the reason why it's known as Caesarea Philippi. But before that and during this time, its patron god was Pan, the goat-headed god of everything. It's the pagan god, it was the Pan, was the pagan god of everything. And basically there were all these little deities all over the place. And uh, there is a cave, actually, in Caesarea Philippi that many believed was the entrance into the Hades and the underworld was one of the entrances. And there was this, like, um, fertility festival every year in the winter where they believed all of these different fertility goddesses would gather. So if you were a pagan and you were trying to conceive, this was the place to go from, like, November to February. And so it is just... And it would have scared all of us, the truth is, is that first-century paganism uh, was a terrifying thing. And there they are the disciples and I picture Jesus walking down the esplanade and he opens up to his disciples with a very very broad question in the midst of all of these idols Jesus asks his disciples who do people say that the son of man is now 
In Jesus' day, the opinions varied. In the, in the prophet Ezekiel, the Son of Man is a man. In the book of Daniel, he's this mysterious figure who sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and is given all authority. Uh, but by Jesus' day, the Son of Man became synonymous with the word Messiah. So he's asking them, who do people say that the Messiah is? And in the first century, there were all sorts of answers, and you see it pop up amongst the disciples. Oh, some say it's the prophet Elijah. Oh, others say it's just one of the prophets. Oh, there's a rumor going around that it's John the Baptist. I mean, he's got the right look, the right message. He's out in that desert somewhere. But he's just actually been killed by Herod, so he can't be it. And then Jesus goes from the broad. He goes from the broad to the very, very specific and actually pressing. And Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? This is critically important. And notice Jesus doesn't ask the logical next question, who do you say that the Son of Man is? He says, who do you say that I am? And there in the midst of all of these pagan idols, Jesus is confronting the disciples and he's confronting you and I with the very essence of biblical faith. He's confronting us with the very essence of Christianity. Who do you say that Jesus is? The Reverend Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who designed the organ of this church here at St. George's, he was a famous theologian and a heart surgeon. And when he wasn't designing organs or often the uh, you know, field in West Africa working on hearts, uh, he was part of a very, very long debate that has spanned about three centuries in the West called the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, what's very interesting about the quest for the historical Jesus is that in some con conversations, uh, what they try and do is they try, uh, they try to attempt to distinguish the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. So they'll ask the question, like, who is this itinerant first century rabbi versus, you know, the Jesus who became the Christ by the church? And in the West, because of this question, this quest being both not only in academia, but has in influenced in the church, um, it has allowed many to say, especially in the church, well, you know, Jesus can be lots of things. He can be lots of things, and what he is for me isn't necessarily what he is for you. You know, he can be God to me, but he can be just an itinerant first century rabbi for you, and that's okay. A couple of years ago, we were down in Union Square, and we asked about 50 people, who do you say that Jesus is? And we got about 45 different answers. You know, and I mean, some of them were very, very interesting. Um, but Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? He asked this question about himself, not because he's curious. Jesus knows who the Son of Man is. What he wants to get at in the midst of all of these pagan gods, in the midst of all of these different so-called pathways to heaven, who do you say that I am? Am I it? You see, the only answer 
the correct answer is not what works for you, works for me, or maybe it doesn't. You know, we're not sure. The only answer, objectively speaking, for the sake of the world is Peter's answer. And it's your answer too. The Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is one and the same. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And notice the adjective, living. It's connected to God here. The God of Israel is a living God, unlike all of these dead stone idols that happen to constitute our surroundings. And this is my first point. When Peter confesses, and as Christians, this is what you and I confess, but what we confess in the midst of a world filled with so many dead idols, when asked who Jesus Christ is, our creed is Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus goes on to say to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Notice that. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Or in other words, this isn't an exercise of St. Peter's free will. You know, Peter didn't come about this with his own strength and reasoning. Hmm, makes sense. No, the confession is actually what Jesus says, my father revealed this to you. What we see is that this confession is actually a revelation from God that is beyond Peter's reason and strength, graciously breaking into Peter's life. And now it is graciously breaking into your life. Our confession, what we're actually engaged in in this place, is really powerful. And Jesus goes on to say it. He says, this confession, he goes, and I tell you, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And this is how powerful it is. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is why in a moment when we stand and say the Nicene Creed, while it may seem ordinary and rote, get that out of your mind and know that you are actually engaged in a supernatural act. Moved by the Holy Spirit, what happens is that our hearts and our lips are joined together confessing the substance of our faith. And the substance of our faith, all of hell cannot overcome it. And this is my second point. When you stand and you confess your faith in a moment in the Nicene Creed, by saying the words of the Nicene Creed, it is evidence that God by his Holy Spirit is at work in you. And that confession is the rock. That confession is the rock where the church is built. And that confession is so solid. That confession is so solid and so sure that the gates of hell cannot prevail over it. 
By that confession and that confession alone, the church has been reformed, it's been revived, and it survives and continues to survive all sorts of hellish insanity coming from both within it and outside of it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the very opposite of confession is denial. And to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, well, that's serious business as well. That's serious business as well because it's to deny the very thing Jesus' life death, resurrection, and ascension attest to. And that denial actually makes God a liar. As we will read next week, though, in our gospel reading, and see throughout Peter's life, within the heart of every Christian is also a person who questions Jesus. Within every Christian is someone who has denied this confession. All Christians are are forgiven deniers, you know, who now confess that Jesus is the Messiah by grace. We're no different than Peter so often. Out of the same mouth will come the holy and the profane, and oftentimes, as we'll see next week, within a few minutes. And it's to this reality of confessor and denier that Jesus says to Peter, I mean, can you stand how good God is? He says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Are you insane? You know what I mean? I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a wonderful gift these keys are. One of the things in the Reformation, one of the symbols of Peter that became a symbol, see prior to that, and it's still in some places today, the symbol of Peter in certain places is like two giant keys and a big shield really confronting you. And it, and it articulates power. But the reformers, when they were talking about Peter and putting symbols around, uh, they used a rooster uh, to remind them that the rock of the church was also the denier of Jesus three times before the cock crowed. And in that rooster's talon are two keys. Are two keys to remind us that every, den- every confessor is also a denier. You see, Jesus wasn't making Peter the Pope, as some would claim. Keys carry a sense of authority. I have a whole set of them. And they let me into every nook and cranny of this parish. The only person who has more keys than me is Camel Boutros. And, um, and that articulates always the, 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 the struggle between the rector and the music director. So, but, um, you know, it's always got one more key than me. And I'm like, what, how does that get, where, how did you get that? So, but, um, but it's because keys illustrate a sense of authority. This is not a decorative abstraction that Jesus is talking about right here. These two keys are the two words that I spoke about last week in my sermon that really define the entire scriptures. These two keys are two words, law and gospel. 
one word law, well, what does it do? It binds and it constrains. And the other word gospel, it brings life and freedom. And in this moment, Jesus is giving Peter, the confessing disciple, as a pastor, as an apostle, the authority of Jesus himself. And with that confession in his heart and upon his lips, Peter and all the apostles and every pastor that has ever followed them have the authority to bind the devil with this word and bind humanity's sin and with this other word, the gospel, set people free from sin and death let them know that they are not only just loved by God, okay, but that they have been forgiven by God once and for all and that by the gospel they have been made children of this living God. The keys can't get muddled or else Christianity loses its power. You need these two words. And this is my third point. You and I, we got to cling to these keys. These words, because when these words, law and gospel, when these keys are distinguished, our confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and all that comes with that is clear. And the essence of our faith, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is magnified and accentuated. What a gift. What a gift, the faith that we confess. It doesn't resonate with us. Rather, it comes, this gift of faith comes from the Father himself to you today. And through the Son who died and rose for you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit now who lays these words in your ears right now, these words of forgiveness, these words of mercy, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, to know that you know that you are loved by God, but more importantly, you have been forgiven by God. I mean, that's the gift of the church. We are the one institution under heaven and on earth that has the authority from God to say your sins are forgiven and you have been reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. And would we focus on that message a little more? I mean, hey, me telling you how to manage your bank accounts or, you know, certain things, I mean, great. <laughs> but uh, I do have the authority to tell you that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and you are set free to love and serve your neighbor. And while we may not be surrounded by, like, pagan idols and, you know, sex festivals happening in the caves, maybe... We confess that same Lord in the midst of atheism, in the midst of cynicism, in the midst of skepticism. And we confess like Peter, knowing that by these words, and these words alone, heaven is opened up to you, the devil is bound, and we have been set free once and for all from sin and death. This confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is the solid rock by which we lay our lives upon. 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and blessed are you, dear baptized Christian in this church. For flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but our Father in heaven. And rejoice today, because he knows you, he loves you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org slash give. Thank you for your support.